Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to a supplementary bonus episode of Retrotube. During the chat with Peter Tunstall, we talked a bit about the tapes we used to post to each other throughout the 90s. For the hauntologically minded among you, and anyone just vaguely curious, I thought I'd present my own C90 mixtape of the best of those cassettes. They're a little weighted towards the tapes Peter and his brother Richard sent me, as those are the ones I have access to, but there's some chunks of my stuff in there too, including the full 11-minute Star Wars Temple of Doom storybook mashup, which still remains the height of my creative achievements. So close your curtains and lie back on your bed as if you're 16, pour yourself a warm cherry aid, and try your very best to enjoy the 1990s. Now the news at a certain time... In the scallop gardens of Kent, Samuel Penguin was eating strawberries out of an upturned woman. He hoped he wouldn't die. Meanwhile in Venezuela, Avril Grant was offloading beetroot onto a balmy general. Her breath of sold hands forgetting etiquette for a moment in the company of that clubbable matrimonial dolt, a criminal zitherer, if ever there was one, which there never was. Meanwhile in Derby, a man called Agnostes Proudfellow was up before the magistrate, the legal guy's alarm having failed to activate. Meanwhile, in Quetel Notiuk on the Greenland Riviera, Knut Brunstrom was up before the magistrate on a charge of being pristine. 53-year-old circus midget Knut was also accused of giving strong liquor to the night sky. People with normal or good eyes claimed to have seen the night sky slurring its stars even though it wasn't misty. Others reported loud laughter and coarse language emanating from the Milky Way. Finally, Andy Pandy was executed today by Maverick TV critic Tom Paulin. Saintly Andy Pandy was a familiar figure about the capital in his coat of bluest blue and his blue hood too. He looked a dandy with his cavalry sabre and fluctuating retina and could always be found in some of the scariest streets, washing the sweet wild feet of the poor, aided always by horses that were either vicious or unsound or both. Andy Pandy was executed today by Maverick TV critic Tom Paulin. Andy Pandy was a familiar figure about the capital in his coat of blue
Yep, you get bitten by one of those. Grown man bitten by one of those. Dead in 50 years. No known antidote. Yeah, think about all these snakes. There's been actually been uh, quite a lot of uh, strange animals about recently. Or ordinary animals behaving in a strange way. Um, earlier on today, out in the back garden, there were um, hundreds and hundreds of cats. I reckon what it was, they came out for the comets. I don't know if you saw these. There's uh, Comet Temple Tuttle as it was passing over on its way back. Probably heard me talking about it um, the other month when it came over, some February or sometime. Anyway, it, it's come back, um, and it's much brighter this time. It's kind of glowing orange comet that fills like most of the southern sky. Um, but uh, oh yes, and there's also uh, um, comet Raffleson Nicholson, which is a very long, thin blue comet with with a kind of a spiral shape, which. Uh, is pretty much in the, the direction of north. Um, anyway, yeah, the, the cats, they were filled the garden, the cats from all over the village seemed to have gathered there, and uh, quite a lot of them had gone up on the garage roof as well, seemed to have been entranced by the comets, and they were looking up at them. And what they do is they, they spend, like, all night staring up at the comets because they're so fascinated by them. I think what it must be, it seems to me, it's as if the gravity of the comets is like lifting a weight off their minds. That's what I think, anyway. Anyway, they, uh, they stand there, filling the garden at, on top of the roof, looking at the comets. And when the sun comes up and they can't see the comets anymore, suddenly they realise that there's all these ca other cats around. And there's a huge band of them, hundreds and hundreds, and of course they can't move because they're, they're like in this kind of cat-type face-off situation. So they're all like staring at each other and, and hissing and spitting and it like takes them all day to actually it takes them hours to gradually work their way ever so slowly out of um, out of the garden and, and far enough away so that they can actually walk away and every so often one, one of them moves slightly too quickly and, and you know and another one leaps on it and then another one leaps on that and there's a huge great battle and fur and blood and the horror, the horror, until until gradually it, it settles down to a kind of a Cold War state of equilibrium again. January 16th. The rest of yesterday vanished beneath a hailstorm of half-forgotten hatred and recrimination. Now I lay on my bedroom floor, the sun playing linseed oil truant across my unhappy Mount Rushmore face. I sat up. My eyes vomited toothbrush games. My tongue unrolled and flapped like a bag of shark fear into the pool of sticky liquid that used to be my feet. Demetrodon called round to see if I wanted to go for a picnic to Hanging Rock. His swollen carboniferous face leered at me and laughed in twelve European languages at once. What's the picnic? I asked. With a flourish of his brain front, he revealed Mrs. Tarmac's peeled face, the lips still moving and producing her characteristic stream of gossip excrement. That's barbaric, I nearly managed to mutter. No, it's Mrs. Tarmac, the Metrodon almost replied. Someone had left a banana skin on the horizon, and with a surprise cry, night fell, landing on day. We rushed outside just in time to see day break, shattering into a thousand blue and white pieces, and beyond that, the thick 
a thick black crack running along the full length of dawn. The moon, the moon, mortified and nauseous at the crack of dawn, began to sway in its lunar mountings, and before anyone could get a bucket, vomited thick sherbet stomachfuls of the most beautiful sparkling blue stars we had ever seen. A thousand constellations stuck together like fizzy candy floss. Demetrodon's face was grooved and sticky, dissolving as it was beneath the rivulets of bitter acidic tears that flowed unashamedly from his eye holes. I became suddenly very aware of the top of my head and the and of the rough texture of my scalp. Prodding it ever so gently, I detected a certain amount of give, and before I knew what had happened, I had pushed a hole about the size of a ten-pence piece right through. Inside, apart from the rusty saucepans and old tyres that inhabit the cranial cavities of all hermaphrodite space monkeys, we discovered an old episode of Antiques Roadshow from 1975. That famous one in which they go to Neptune and evaluate the, a lot of antique gases, generating, generating so much excitement that it ends in a live crocodile fight. <laughs> In the evening, whilst watching the bill, I discovered that I can change colour at will. I must remember to mention this to Demetrodon tomorrow, who can only change colour at random. January 18th. Today was National Cannibalism Day, so I was sure to stay indoors. I spent most of the morning watching the TV. By the afternoon, I couldn't stand it any longer and switched it on. There was a documentary on about old people who lived in a river. They had been there so long they evolved into fish and adopted special watery ideals and a bizarre subaquatic religion that involved worshipping plankton. I rang Demetrodon and suggested this to him. He was so amused he laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. He laughed so much that I got scared and began to cry. I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried while he laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. It may be in my imagination, but I think I'm beginning to dislike Demetrodon. January 20th. My feet tried to strangle me in my sleep last night. I woke with red toe marks around my neck. Spent the rest of the day hunting for my sore, but it seems to have mysteriously vanished. The horizon came to dinner and was nothing but trouble. It spat in my soup, left whole uncooked onions all over the bathroom floor and tried to have me arrested for whimsy. I shan't be making that mistake again. January 22nd. Demetrodon activated my head's emergency eject mechanism and sent it spinning off into space. I told him I never wanted to see him again. He said, All right, and poked my eyes out. Dear Spirit World, I am writing to inquire about the gangrenous child advertised on your website. I am very keen to be haunted by the spectre of a putrescent youngster and have been searching for some years for a suitable ghoul to install in my bedchamber. I live in Brig. However, I understand that these sprites can vary quite a bit in malevolence and I was wondering if you could give me some indication of just how sinister your particular model is before I commit myself. I am no stranger to disappointment. In my quest for mental torment, I have, over the years, acquired an impressive collection of almost 15 undead kids who manifest nightly in varying states of decomposition and posthumous anguish. While I and my family do certainly suffer at their hands, and a neighbour was once frightened to death, one could hardly go so far as to describe this as traumatic. I appreciate that you may not wish to discuss this for legal reasons, but any information you could provide would be most welcome. Your loving servant, Dennis H. Hampton. Dear Frenchman Magazine, I think I have made a new discovery that may be of interest to your readers, whether Frenchmen themselves or simply those of a, with a French way about them. Here is my discovery. Some weeks ago, I accidentally fell off a metre-high wall. 
To my surprise, I incurred no injury. On the contrary, I actually felt better for the fall, stronger and fitter than I have in a long time. The following day, I cautiously began experimenting with small drops. I repeated my tumble from the wall, and once again noted a striking increase in my inherent well-being. Over the ensuing weeks, I have sought out walls of ever greater elevation, up to a height of two metres, and can assure you that the effect is quite real and frankly delightful. In each case, I felt refreshed and healed, in a new and profound way, on a very deep level. Naturally, there have been a few minor grazes and contusions, particularly with the bigger descents, which can appear rather off-putting, leaving large parts of my body almost permanently stained in spectacular bruises, ranging from tangerine to rusty purple. But in a funny way, this only seems to add to the healing. You may think this is all very subjective, but it is impossible to argue with the reactions I have had from other people, the vast majority of whom like me a lot since my discovery. I've had offers of marriage, and my salary has increased by nearly over one and a half fold. If you cannot find a wall where you live, you can still get some idea of the effect by stumbling around, perhaps crashing into things. I often fall flat on my face in the street just to get a recharge on the way home from work, and the uplift is incredible. I can't wait to sample some larger walls as soon as I get a chance. The one at the back of the knacker's yard, for instance. I will definitely be trying a roof when the holidays come. Love to all. Free fall. Some other than you gave from apples. We went to Cape Cod for dinner. 
Alright, so you better talk into it and see whether your voice comes up. Go on, come again. <laughs> right, okay, let's try it at that then. Working out the chances of events happening in the future depends to a great extent on the lines of the Mrs. Hobgoblin sighed and switched off. It had been a good program, just the kind of sentimental trash she liked. What was it about, the dead people again? asked her son, Blokey. Of course, burbled Mrs. H. I do so like the dead. They're so sweet. Well, what was it this time? Mmm, let me see. There was an old man, German, I think, or he could have been a refugee. Anyway, he was a musician, and he used to play duets with his wife, but she died a long time ago. Then they found this new drug that made her able to play the piano still. He played a duet with her. It was like when those ones with a sleepy sickness could play the piano, but the rest of the time they were in a trance, except that she was really dead. How do you know? She might just have... Oh, she was dead, ducky. She'd gone grey-skinned and shriveled like a skeleton the way they do, and she was bald. Well, anyway, they played the duet. It was so sweet. And then she turned round very slowly and tried to look at him, but he didn't like it and backed away, and that was the end of that. It was lovely. Pah, said Blokey, what schmaltz. Mind you, they reckon Lenin performed after his death. What did he do? Did he play an instrument? No, just gags, really. They got into the party tricks, sort of, to impress third world revolutionaries when they came to visit the Kremlin. I was there myself in 73. 
Wow, that must have been quite a bobby dazzler. Did he do that thing with the teapot that Paul Daniels does? What, make tea? Hmm. No, actually, the only thing we saw, they just call it indoor fireworks, but when we got there, it was just that one with the stuff you burn and it grows into a dog turd. Paul Pot thought it was hilarious, of course. Never mind. Maybe they'll have something for you this week. What are you talking about, Muller? The job centre. That's hardly likely now, is it? Don't worry, son. You'll find something you enjoy eventually. I already have, Mother. I enjoy trying to persuade people I'm only vaguely acquainted with to throw sugar beet at buildings and toffs. <sighs> I mean a proper job, like torturing that Italian girl. What was her name? I never meant to hurt her. It was an accident. Besides, the Italian government won't let her come and play anymore. They say I was making a meal out of her. Oh, and she was such a nice girl. Especially when she did that crucifixion thing with her arms and legs were all covered in those teeny weeny bits of blood. Flex, that's what they call them, I think. Just like the more normal Jesus. Yeah. See there, you liked her then. Why don't you go and invent a new game with her? I tell you, man, the Italian authorities won't let her come over. They say she isn't safe here. Bah, what could possibly happen to her? Well, she could get crucified. I suppose so. When Blokey went to sign on that week, he found that a Chinese dragon had got in the queue ahead of him with all its millipede legs. This may take forever, he thought. When he eventually got to the desk, the nasty blinky woman, just to get back at him for being late, pretended that his eye knife was broken. No, it's not, he told her. Well, why don't you get it fixed? She persisted in a soft undercurrent of sound. Because there's nothing wrong with it. When you need to open snakes, what, when the job centre puts snakes in my bank account, you mean? No, when you open snakes with your knife, she sneered, as if it was the most obvious thing. I can't say I've ever experienced any problem opening snakes. It was true, he hadn't. Well, that's as maybe. Give it here. But there's nothing wrong with it. Well, that's not what I've been told. You'd better hand it over. No, but she had already snatched it. Mm, just as I thought, she muttered, then opened it and snapped it shut so the blade somehow spun right through the handle and stuck out the other side, snagging into her wrist. There we go, she said smugly, using blood and little dead ichneumon wasps, which just seemed to pop out of her vein at every pulse. Now take this and queue up downstairs. Mumbling the standard obsequities, Blokey stomped downstairs and stood in line. He supposed vaguely that he would have to have the top of his skull sliced again so that the knife could be placed back in his brain. He had almost forgotten about that from last time. He must have just have got so used to it, he thought. He looked out of the cornea of his eye at the others queuing there to see if they had the characteristic red mark of the skull operation left on their foreheads to show that the pocket knife was in its nest. Through the window he could just see Cetus the whale. Later he was in the library, returning some of the emotions that he didn't need any longer. He couldn't remember what they had done at the job centre. He just sort of switched off the way he normally did. He hoped there hadn't been anything important to remember. But his concerns were interrupted by alarms. 
A crack police unit appeared to be forcing an entry, but every time they swung their battering ram, the automatic door swept open unscathed. After a while, they gave up and charged into the library. It was said that some of the guerrilla armies lived in the depths of the library, much deeper in than people normally went, using it as a base from which to strike at the populated zones, killing people and cars, and eloping to safety under cover of the print medium. Loki reckoned the police would be going in after them, though, this time, as they were all wearing dust jackets and bookshelves for camouflage. He trudged wearily back in the direction of the bus station and got distracted by an empty shop where he had to stroke a Chinese girl with his bare feet. She seemed to be quite contented and sleepy. Then suddenly she said, Have you ever tried a monk? No, of course not, said Blokey, and ran. He was just passing the jewellers when he met his friend, Axel Ariopaga. They talked for a while. Axel told him about this Queen's speech that he had got free tickets for because he had helped to write a bit of it. Which bit, asked Blokey. A bit about the grabbing hand. Did she say anything about the Italian government? No. Oh. Axel described the Queen as standing at the front of a, standing at the front of the stage with a poker. When she turned her face slightly, her eyes sort of merged together to make a cyclops face. Axel had soon become irritated by this and decided to go into the passage and get a poker of his own. He also find, found some little brass fish there which he intended to throw at the Queen. When he got back, she was gone, and it was just his brother there watching a German alien chasing a beam of light across an orange Martian landscape sometime in the 1970s. You're sure she didn't say anything about the Italian government, or... Sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, as a rose. I wrote it, didn't I? Just... Oh, hang on, there was something. She said that the Italian authorities had given permission for the Italian girl to come over on the ferry. She should be here in nine hours. By the way, you'll be eaten by a snake in the next nine hours. Uh, thanks, said Blokey, and hurried to catch the bus before his prophecy came into effect. He had a job interview at Dan's Novelty Oriental Crematorium in Belton, he'd just remembered. And he also didn't want to hang around because he had a nasty feeling Axel was about to implode and suck in all the golden jewellery out of the shop making conversation too upmarket to hold. The fire giant was back on the hill. Getting off the bus, Blokey realised that he had missed his stop. Actually, he had arrived in his home time. As he walked gingerly up the front path, he kept hearing hissing in the bonfire pile. For a long time, he stared at it, trying to spot the snake out of all the twigs and small insects. Finally, he saw a small grass snake and rushed past unbitten to the lawn in front of the house where his simple brother had made life-sized men out of grass. For a moment he prevaricated over whether to go back and try to get to Belton. Then he decided instead to be self-employed and collect some paintings of a special kind that he could now identify and forensically test. One painting which was still in his pocket he had found in a ditch on the hillside near a small gauge railway and an even smaller Stonehenge. The painting was made of bright blue bile from a dying person, now hardened into a shiny enamel. He hurried on up the side of the house and in the front door. The living room was empty. He looked at the clock. It seemed to say nine, but the more and closer he looked at it, the harder it was to be sure. Then he heard a desperate whimper from the dining room. Look who's come, his mother called. A certificate from the Italian Port Authority 
had allowed them to borrow the Italian girl from her prison cell back in the mental asylum in Italy where she lived. But it was obvious that she was fading fast. A terrible storm broke that night, just like in the film Gothic where Mary Shelley invented the myth of Frankenstein. Axel Ariopaga, Selkit Clearwing, Bloki and his simple brother Arthur all ran out into the garden and danced in the crashing rain, Arthur leaping up again and again to try and touch the lightning. Then the sky cleared a little, and Neptune appeared over the roofs of Millfield Crescent. But people thought it was a blue moon and tried to shoot it down with fireworks. There was a documentary on TV about the brand new Queen of China and how she was eventually discovered to be three smaller queens standing on each other's shoulders. The deception was only rumbled when the fake monarch slipped over in the shower and broke into three individual pieces. One of the offending figureheads was our own Queen Elizabeth and she was quickly sent home with her prehensile tail between her legs. She knighted some postmen that same afternoon There was a bit of a rumpus when one of the postmen became confused, licked the back of her head and succeeded in franking her and sending her to Middlesbrough attached to a parcel. My enjoyment of the documentary was severely compromised by Demetrodon and his attempts to apprehend an intruder. And I asked that they keep the noise down till the commercial break. The man claimed to be rehearsing for a play about burglary and requested that we allow him to continue undisturbed. When I shot him, he seemed genuinely agitated and said that I wasn't behaving like a professional. Eventually, the fuzz arrived. Demetrodon had ordered it from eBay for his bedding. That afternoon, we left the intruder in charge of the house and went shopping. We visited the pain shop. Demetrodon bought a punch in the stomach while I treated myself to an unexpected poke in the eye. It was my auntie's birthday next week and we both decided that it would be a nice gesture if we got her a severe case of abdominal cramps and a small bag of convulsions. Then we went round to my grandma's house and spent the rest of the afternoon eating biscuits. An adorable Labrador puppy! There was quite a commotion over at the local church and we soon discovered that their Jesus had escaped and was now rampaging through the shopping centre brutally spreading peace, forgiveness and goodwill to all men with its hard wooden fists. The escaped Jesus would be cornered days later by police marksmen and given 8 out of 10 for effort. Demetrodon spent the evening beating his wife. First he beat her at Monopoly, then he beat her at Scrabble. This was a new version of Scrabble, especially for bees. All the letters were Z. Demetrodon's wife got a triple word score for My face came adrift overnight. We found it the following morning eating ice cream and talking in a strange language that only foreign people could understand. It put up quite a fight and bit me on the hand several times. And then, as soon as it was reattached, began to scream and cry from the bites on its hand. We punished my face by hitting it with sticks. And Demetrodon suggested we should also burn it with hot metal and cut it with a razor. When I objected... Demetrodon pointed out that it was always best to be cruel to be kind, 
which is why he spends so much of his day torturing animals. Then at lunchtime, the early reptile police came round and extincted Demetrodon. They said it was for moving some dirt into the wrong place three years ago, though Demetrodon suspected that they were really cross about all those assassination attempts he'd made after his mum bought him that assassination kit for Christmas. The police used an extinction rod, the type reputedly used by the real Mona Lisa for killing and eating children and adults and other adults in Renaissance Italy. No one could have foreseen that in her enigmatic smile. For the burial, I used cannibal undertakers. We put the feeding frenzy back into funeral. Demetrodon had no friends, not even me. So I hired in some hired mourners. Unfortunately, when they arrived, it turned out they were clowns, and instead of crying, entertained me with their delightful antics. It's what he would have wanted, they said, then proceeded to beat me up, steal my cash, and make off with my car, leaving me bruised and bloodied by the graveside. It's also what he would have wanted, they said. And damn it, they were right! That Wednesday, Demetrodon rose from the dead, still sticky from enzymes and giggling uncontrollably from all that tickly, flesh-eating bacteria. Apparently, the escaped Jesus had, and I quote, magicked me alive, mate. He'd done it with spells. Any excuse to chalk up a miracle. So it all turned out okay. Except that Demetrodon's face is now a leering, corpse-like mask that is so flimsy with a rot that it frequently tears on the corners of bookshelves and people. But you can't have everything. And at least no one else in the whole world died that year. David Cole likes sport. He plays badminton and football. He passes his time with sleeping and drinking. In moderation. He reads fantasy-type books. When I asked him what sort of music he enjoyed, he chanted some unheard of names. He ambitiously boasts that he could, should the need arise, devour approximately three or even four rhinoceroses in a single day. He has no qualms about the illegal practice of smuggling these poor beasts into the country and would prefer this practice to be carried out during the time when the customs officials are awake so as to endanger the lives of the customs officials in any ensuing trouble. His ambition is not to die, but to grow older. Rather ironic when compared with his attitude to customs officials. But David Cole has a secret identity. For at night time, when the sky grows dark, David Cole is... Europa! Europa is believed to have a relatively large silicate core. Its high algorithm suggests that it has an icy surface. Europa's density of 3.1 times 10 to the power of 3 kilograms m to the power of minus 3 would result from a mixture of silicates and water ice in the ratio of 9 to 1 by weight. A 70 kilometer thick crust of ice may cover a region of slushy water ice, 100 kilometers thick, beneath which lies the 1,400 kilometer silicate core. Radioactive decay is likely to continue to heat the interior, which may reach temperatures of around 2,800 K. Kelvin, I presume. We used to live in a fairly dark place called Heyday, Coxex County. 
The road to the south is always full of white bees, which used to come up from the Antarctic in summertime and oblige us with their miserable Antarctic music. Although they made no buzzing, the lasses used to go and feed them on algae and house bricks, which had the effect of making them sing in voices that reminded me alternately of sawdust, cash, chicken feed, more sawdust, little sawdust Jesus, and coits, and then made them crash. To the east and west, these directions were reversed, as we lived in a left-handed county. Archangels came and went, like supreme mind snakes in autumn, or perhaps more like cygnets coming and going, with scalpels between their teeth, along with various French peddlers, taxonomists, diving instructors, artificial face merchants, and a Zen master who smuggled the plates that fall from people's eyes for his ghost friends to turn into mice. But in the black and spidery north, a vertical road stretched far up into the guttering of night, leading to far and distant places such as Durham, Scotland, Vanishing Point and the Moon. Sometimes my mum would go a little way up on her vacuum cleaner, maybe as far as Draco or the Little Bear. And sometimes my dad drove us up as far as grandma and granddad at Trimden in his van in a giddy vertiginous three-hour ride. I never could understand how he managed to get all that way without ever falling off. What if he stopped or fell asleep in the darkness up there? How far to fall? Well, anyway, one summer's day, the bees had all gone to sleep on top of tall white gravestones in the ominous shape of genitalia, possibly to ward off vandals. A hot breeze blew between our legs, and the adverts on TV were all for different phases of the moon. If you collected a full set, you could have months. So we decided to go down to the little wickerwork bridge that spanned our local abyss and play at being carpenters and make thoughts out of wood. I was going to make an interesting thought out of Suzanne's wooden leg, but instead we went to the Parallax Fair to see Allosaurus wrestling and bishop baiting and have a go on the leeches. Everyone enjoyed themselves at the fair, although there were some mishaps. Sean was made into a kebab by the Leonid meteors. Robert went and joined the Mafia as a pig's loin. Suzanne received seven strokes of the jellyfish for making sea urchin faces at a policeman and a limpet-like sound at some consultants. And I found myself married to a slightly Australian silverfish, which said in a trembling voice, I move violins. Don't transmit a heart, please. Luckily, we got divorced almost instantly by a passing lighthouse. I was thankful that I still had the intelligence to split a pea down the middle to see if there was any plaster of Paris giant mock axolotl head inside. There wasn't, but still I feel justified in seeing. After that, I found myself wandering for days across the desolate jade floor of a dried up ocean of fat. Thunderclouds like jaguar lip turtles voided and got up on their haunches. 
dried litter leaves and people blew and twisted on the equinoctial winds, putting me in mind of the noises governments make when they have legal dysentery. I could see that today's breakfast of the emotions was going to be a doolally one, otherwise known as a mixed mixtech bag. Well, I had been worming my waterless way for what seemed like forceps when a terrible jungle appeared, and I was back home. Heads. Where would we be without them? Heads are such an integral part of our daily lives that we often forget just how important they really are. Before the discovery of the head, people were forced to live ridiculously short lives of meaningless drudgery and confusion. But in the small Lincolnshire village of Brandon, on the 10th of May, 1765, that was all about to change. It happened almost by accident, as Isaiah Merrybladder the Elder was playing as tiddlywinks with his pet iguanodon. Suddenly, a minor planetary body, or possibly a meteorite, fell from what we now know to be the sky and lodged itself squarely between his handsome cheese and gravy-stained shoulders. Eureka! he cried. The idea of the head was born, and the whole world of hats, spectacles and false teeth sprang into being. To the ancient Egyptians, the head was the seat of the hair. They experimented with all kinds of heads. Big heads. <laughs> Little heads. And a rather ingenious biodegradable model which they filled with sawdust and worshipped under the pretense that it was a magic dandelion presented as a gift to the pharaoh Ptarmigan the Unexpected. Napoleon Bonaparte had a head. Isaac Newton had a head. Pope Gregory the Great had a head. Henry VIII had a big one. William of Orange had an orange one. Enid Blyton had two. In fact, most of the great figures of world history have had a head of some kind or another, to a greater or lesser degree, at some point in their lives. Some isolated tribes of Western Polynesia were reputed to be able to sail across miles of open ocean in primitive rafts made entirely out of the heads of well-known personalities and celebrities from the world of show business. The infamous gambling houses and coffee shops of 18th century Mars were renowned for the massive collections of pretty green and blue heads which flowed through their doors in a seemingly endless stream. That one witty commentator of the time almost likened to... <laughs> that one witty commentator of the time almost likened to... A pig's thigh without any goats. But... At the dawn of the modern era, advances in advancement and an unprecedented increase in the jelly flailing in the industrialised countries culminated in Sigmund Freud and the first real understanding of the psychological importance of the head. 
as Freud revealed, the head is the uppermost part of the body, and hence the topmost segment of ourselves, and far from being a practical and prosaic tool for hammering in stubborn nails, it was now seen as in some way a deep and often frightening reflection of the dark secret recesses of our uttermost psyche. One is only to look at the shape of the head and its use in highly significant phrases like ahead when we say to get ahead or heading out west to see the Oedipal connotations of this most fascinating of organs. The head can represent turning or nodding or shaking or shooking or shaking or slulling or shin-shin-shata-tata-tea-breaking, or anything, really. It can appear in its positive yang aspect, as it does when covered in crisp, green, dewy lettuce leaves and salad cream, and left to soak in a bucket of fetid wombat milk. Or it can appear in its negative yin aspect, as when two people meet each other for the first time, and one squirts the other in the face with molten trombones. A pigsty without any goats. <laughs> but whatever we think to this unique and intriguing phenomenon, love it or hate it till you're blue in the face and purple at the knees, the head, in all its timeless wonder, is here to stay and will be with us for a long time to come, well into the 21st century. So whether you've got a head yourself or you know another mammalian life form that does have, Here's Patricia Never Say Never to an Elbow wishing you happy headhunting and don't forget to let out the cat. A dude died today. We didn't know what to do. Finally, Demetrodon had an idea. Let's bury him in a dude can. And we did. January 2nd. A drizzly day full of evil clouds that looked like badly scrambled egg. Fortunately, they were too high up to do any real damage, but I have heard of such clouds deliberately killing household pets and smashing up telephone boxes. Today, they could do nothing but spit. The Russians launched their new satellite in the afternoon. It has long, stinging tentacles which it uses to prey on smaller satellites. It's all so far away that no one is really worried, except people with satellite TV. January 4th. I decided that I would never get married, so now I carry an egg sack of ping-pong balls about with me wherever I go to repulse and nauseate all the eligible young ladies. I do not see them as people. I see them only as those multicoloured alligators which wrestle about behind your wardrobe when you are trying to sleep. I also discovered that if you join the dots in the night sky, you can spell out a particularly vulgar message. Later on, I had a great idea and tried making some hoax prayers to God, just a load of heavy breathing and then amen. January 6th. I was greatly amused today when my girlfriend Graham gave birth to a litter of kittens. Even funnier, though, was when the brass weathercock on top of the church laid an egg. To keep it warm, he put it in the vicar's lunchbox next to his sandwiches. Later that afternoon, it hatched into the tiniest, fluffiest, cutest little black-and-white vicar you'd have ever, you have ever seen. It was a little unsteady on its feet at first, but once we had given it some warm milk, it was as happy as Larry. According to Mrs Tarmac, this new vicar will take over when the old one dies or becomes disinterested. <laughs> a bunch of scientists came round later on being loud and obnoxious and thinking they're really clever. I soon put a stop to this by laughing every time they mentioned their particle accelerator. 
I told them I had mu I had a much better idea, but wouldn't say what it was. They went, look they went away looking worried and muttering amongst themselves. This evening I discovered that uh, I am made entirely of tachyons. January 8th. Saw an interesting documentary today about the Queen's dreams. She doesn't know why, but apparently every night she dreams about having tea with lots of ordinary housewives. She has a special aide in charge of her dreams to make sure that she doesn't dream anything to worry or disorientate her royal personage. It was a bit of a scare a few years ago when she began to have nightmares about a giant glowing glass moon setting into the sea and filling with water, and dead basking sharks floating around her head calling her Gladys and Mabel. Eventually, the aide discovered that she had been sleeping too close to the mirror, and her dreams were getting mixed up with those of her reflection. In the afternoon, I went to my telephone. <laughs> In the afternoon, I went to the telephone exchange and exchanged my telephone. January tenth. Today was a clumsy day. I was woken up early by clouds bumping into each other. When the sun tried to rise, it got tangled up in all that cobwebby early morning mist and sat around on the horizon, all red and embarrassed for the rest of the day. Even worse, nobody could talk because the words came out in big messy lumps and music sounded just like a bunch of bad sounds. Ever the rebel, the sea arranged itself into a series of neat parallel lines, annoying fishermen and sailors who found it impossible to navigate. January 12th. Demetrion and I went to visit the famous Roman bath spas at Bath. Even though there was a barrier stopping the public getting too close to them, Demetrion still managed to impale himself on a spa. The ambulance was duly called out, but disaster! The ambulance crew evolved into Welsh conjecture on the way, an abstract concept combining extreme religiosity with 3D 1970s shirts. On the way home, we were attacked by evil mower birds, whom we believed to be extinct. They asked us if we wanted to see the world reflected in a moonbeam. We said we'd rather cut our own legs off and proceeded to prove this. Excited by the promise of warm blood, the birds began to chant, We are now a god! We are now a god! We managed to make our getaway and hid in the nine times table because, as everyone knows, there's safety in numbers. January 14th, went to the moon for the first time in six months. Nothing had changed. Unfortunately, part of the moon got trapped in the rocket door, and as we travelled home, we managed to pull the entire celestial body inside out. We didn't know whether to be more horrified by this or the fact that beneath its shiny white exterior, it was decaying and rotten with disappointment. Studying it closer, we could just about make out the impression of Armstrong and Aldrin's crestfallen faces, etched giant-sized in the stinking, mushing lunar flesh, their noses flattened as if pressed against glass. Later in the day, a policeman snuck into the house and reversed my taste buds. Now all the things I used to like I hate, and all the things I hated I like. I now live on a diet of egg white, boiled tomatoes and raisins. This evening, the Metrodon won the lottery, but was hit by a meteor before he could collect the winnings. Chewbacca popped his head out of the open window to have a look. The asteroid smashed into the giant Wookiee's neck. And then sent his head spinning off into space. Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader. Carrying a bunch of flowers. What lovely flowers, said dozens of Imperial stormtroopers. They're for our spring display, said Vader. We're all bringing something. They all had something special. The helpless rebel soldiers had brought a basket of eggs. They all showed Pat what they had brought. Artem D2 brought a cup of tea for Pat. Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader. What a nice place for a picnic, he said. But this place gives me the creeps. I feel like... An enormous picnic. 
almost 50 miles long. Little did they know the rebellion was doomed, for the emperor had ordered... All kinds of shiny things. Bits of glass, wire, a milk bottle top, buttons, a doll's eye, and... Rebel commanders were... Not very intelligent, I'm afraid. I think they're adorable. Answered Vader, the Death Star was lurking nearby. And I thought I'd lost it down the sink. At the touch of a button, an intense beam of light shot out to form a glowing... Kangaroo. Ben succeeded in shutting off the tractor beam, but his return to Han's ship was blocked by... The lady with an enchanting little kangaroo. Finally, her projected... Kangaroo. ...cut through Ben's cloaks. What's going on here? Asked the startled Ben, remembering stories about the noble shirts who kept the peace before the Empire took control. Yes, Ben, and this was no picnic. I've been saving it for you. Ben handed Luke a picnic. He ordered the Sheriff of Nottingham to set a course for home. Suspecting danger, the rebels began to tax the people so heavily that some were forced to become imperial troops. What was the thing in the water? I do not know. An imperial probe droid. I have never seen one so beautiful. Little John sang a song, making fun of Prince John. I close my eyes and picture the emerald of the sea. That is not what we say in Gondor. Then you know nothing in Gondor. There's no evil in it, unless a man brings evil there with him. It had better keep away from my van. Spock grasped his friend's hand. Han blasted it into a thousand fiery pieces. The Emperor was delighted. And waved as they all went by. The warmth of friendship of human emotions, Vijay cannot find. But at last, I have. Oh dear, said Pat. Hammering Luke to the floor. It was all much better than the best of sandwiches. And now a poem entitled Christmas Morning. Orion, on the riverbank, ranged the night, above resplendent smudges of electric light, with handfuls of glitter illuminating the snow, in a misty sugar-white street lamp glow. An organ in the courtyard played a dulce jubilo, in the tartan light of a tinsel-decked window, cradled by side stools in the winter's ice, wearing golden smoke tasting of orange and spice. And then, from the darkness, in a gently arced line, streaked a silver firework frozen in time. Or rather, some fairy lights adorning a sleigh at one minute past midnight on Christmas Day. Sailing through Auriga, then out of Gemini, leaving an optic trace across the midnight sky. The silent starlight rider caught by the lights of appeared. Red cloaks flowing behind a frost-white beard. He landed by the fountain where the glass swans play, a crown of floodlit birds and open-winged array, and dismounted his glitter-painted sapphire blue ride, stepping towards the square and all the folks inside. Then, Count Santa Claus called his full voice warning. Good people, rejoice. It is Christmas morning. 
I see you're all festive, that is a delight. But let the spirit slip and I'll visit you tonight. With that fearful message, the Count did then depart. A striking dictated cheer into every person's heart. For fear of a visit, they dared not even frown. Celebration became fevered that night in the town. He walked happily through many meadows and came to a great river. On the other side, a little brown creature with bright eyes and thick silky hair was coming out of a dark hole just above the water. It was Han Solo and his falcon. Smuggling rebel sympathizers through imperial blockades is no picnic. He pointed to a basket filled with tasty sandwiches. I was in the end room with a bowl of soggy cereals. I said to Dad, it's like what the cereals saw. I have counted the chimbley holes too many times, for it has killed me, a counting of the chimbley holes. And also, the Queen is represented by a gold statue. The poor and destitute are represented in person. And I was putting something up in the loft. It was a script that he'd just read and liked. But he was um, putting up the ladder, and I was helping him, so he handed me a plug. But when I tried to plug it in, I saw that all the sockets in the bathroom had ridiculous shapes, so that it was impossible to plug a normal plug into them. I said I was just going to get a transformer and set off to my room to find one. But passing in the kit, but passing the kitchen, I saw Mark Hamill, who had come down for the Star Wars celebrations, and must have popped in on his on, for the afternoon on his way down. But to my horror, I saw that he was just putting on his coat and wellies, ready to leave for the wrong for the long drive over a hundred miles down the A1 to a place called Pointing. What senseless beauty is pulled out by the top? Oh dear, Horace Filmmaker zooms in and gives them quite the turn of their ingredients. He fleshes them out, you see, with all the needling dexterity of a poindexter mile. And now for a creature from our upper isles, said the voice, and I was lying in a lake, or possibly a loch. The morsel fish, said the voice. A yard-long fish with purple and black and pink felt skin came straight towards me. It seemed to be making straight for my face. I wondered when it would turn aside, but it didn't. The morsel fish lives in cooperation with humans. Actually, it feeds humans. This is what I thought it was doing when I felt something warm on my arm and then my neck. But first, it feeds off humans, taking tiny morsels it finds in human hair. It was licking vigorously at my neck. First I tried to push it, put it with it. Then I tried to push it, push it aside. It hung on, so I stuck it out as long as I could, hoping it would soon finish. But it's horribly tickly, and I finally got desperate and woke up with a squeak trying to brush it off with my hand. A documentary program about the mysterious death of an artist. Everyone knows he had been found dead in his apartment with a dialogue wasp in his pocket. At home, Richard was waving a computer about over his head and swinging around like a discus thrower. Mary was waving a ten-pound note and looking very pleased with herself, as if she had just played a trick on Claire. Claire was holding a Christmas present and looking puzzled, as if Mary had just played a trick on her, but she wasn't sure what. Today I visited Sneer World, one of Britain's last sneer factories, now open to the public. There were many fascinating exhibits, including great sneerers of the world, the history of the sneer, and how to tell a sneer from a grimace. They showed us how they made the contemptuous sneer, the superior sneer, and the condescending sneer.
The craftsmanship that goes into the contemptuous sneer is quite amazing. It's no wonder they cost a little more. After the exhibition, I went into the gift shop to buy a lascivious sneer for my Aunt Maureen. Her own sneers are quite amateur. I think she'll love it. The big hand girl came round in the evening to spank some naughty children who had infested our kitchen. I noticed them after I heard rustling coming from under the sink and later found some droppings. The children gradually became bolder and bolder, swapping our teeth in the night, pushing rude messages through our neighbours' letterboxes and stealing the graphite from our pencils and our cat's pencils and our friend's pencils. The big hand girl was great. Her spanking was efficient and humane and the naughty children were soon sent on their way. I later saw them wandering dejectedly in circles around an effigy of a giant ice cream. Other things I have discovered this week. Busters have souls. Cats actually don't enjoy being tied together. There's no such place as Germany. It's physically impossible to pronounce the word rubber. Dolphins can be embarrassed by their own reflection. There was once a man on a boat. You can't fold paper more than once. Trees are ticklish under their branches. Men have secret wombs. Snakes understand English. And the planet Neptune is further away than you might imagine. Further even than Italy. Last night I dreamt I had cat jeans. On Friday my mother came round with some unsettling news. A group of dinosaurs had unextincted and were now roaming the country distracting people. Already they had caused 12 minor road accidents, 7 botched operations, 4 missed goals and a rather unfortunate incident involving NORAD. One of the dinosaurs was a Twiceratops, the lamest of all prehistoric creatures. Another was just eight mice standing on each other's shoulders. There was also an invisible dinosaur called Margaret, the top half of a Tyrannosaurus rex, and a red and yellow clown dinosaur, who sang beautiful love songs all evening long and enchanted the hearts of all the ladies. The dinosaurs had last been spotted near Chester, buying sandwiches. They were now said to be heading in my direction, though in more of a philosophical way than something actually happening in the real world. In fact, they didn't even really exist at all, and I sent my mother home in disgrace. A list of things you can throw away. A ball. Dr Sponge came round to see me today. He has no sponge-like properties and is, in fact, a perfectly normal doctor, although he is very absorbent. Once he diagnosed my ailments and prescribed me with some medicine, he then helped me to wash up. In fact, now I come to think about it, he was just a sponge. So why am I taking this medicine? When I was little, I planted a telephone tree in my garden. At first I thought it wouldn't do anything at all, and that winter it seemed as good as dead. But come springtime it blossomed with the most beautiful red flowers I had ever seen, and filled the garden with an enchanting perfume, a little like apricot. Then the blossoms fell and the telephone tree fruited. It was so exciting, my tree producing fruit. Tiny at first, the little telephones grew and grew over the summer months. At night, I could hear them ringing faintly in the breeze, like they were crying. Sometimes I answered them and heard voices of people who had died a long time ago, wondering distantly where they were, their words barely whispered. I even made friends with one of them, a little girl who had been trampled by a horse in 1911. We talked every night, and I comforted her as best as I could. But one day the telephone fell and she was gone. The wasps got most of the phones that first year, but as the years passed, the crop grew and grew. At first the telephones were hard and green, but we left them in a bowl to ripen. Most became red, although occasional ones would be a lovely translucent white. They were my favourites. 
I lost the telephone tree on my 15th birthday. It was the stormiest night I could remember. I still recall the crash of thunder overhead like a thousand suits of armour falling upstairs and the smell of burning wood. We rushed to the window. There at the bottom of the garden was my little telephone tree, silhouetted by fire. By morning there was nothing left, just a blackened finger of charcoal jutting up from the soil. There was this woman once. They x-rayed her head and inside they found a perfect human skull. Can you imagine? It was just like one of those plastic skulls yet at Halloween. I don't know if she had it removed or if they just left it in there. What would it be like wandering around your whole life with a skull inside your head? I found out why rain has the name it does. It's because it's so wet. Some other things I found out this week. Wood is spelt the way it is because of the two O's in the middle. Birds don't call it flying, they call it running away in the air. Most blank 90-minute cassettes have shouting towards the end, but no one has ever bothered to listen that far. Early calculators were missing the number four, a simple manufacturing oversight. The Finnish are so called because they were the final people God made. I hope your head is a decent size. seconds after the two droids blasted off, Princess Leia was captured and thrown into the mine to work with the other children. Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader, the fierce Imperial warrior. The evil look in his eyes faded and was gone. Commander, 
We're going to set all these rebel soldiers free. Darth Vader knocked out dozens of Imperial stormtroopers and used his keys to free the helpless rebel soldiers as they fled the mine. A shaggy eight-foot Wookiee suddenly attacked Darth Vader. Fiercely, Darth Vader battled the giant, but his blows had no effect. Indy yelled to Willie and Shorty. Thanks, Shorty. I'm okay now. Shorty grabbed a torch and jammed it into Indy's side. Fiercely, Indy battled Shorty. Shorty finally tripped Indy. Darth Vader whizzed away into a tunnel. Indy threw his laser. Chewie and I will take care of this. Punching priests left and right, he led them back into the mine. Darth Vader curled up in a ball, turning green. Within minutes, Mola Ram appeared with more guards firing their laser rifles. The helpless children could only surrender. Through the hatch strode a green, cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader, the fierce Imperial shoulder. We're going to set all these kids free. The potion worked. A cold, evil look entered Indy's eyes. Commander, tear this ship apart until you found those plans. At a gesture from Mola Ram, his chains were unlocked. A furious battle began. The air hummed and sparks flew as lightsabers swung and clashed. Finally, Darth's saber cut through Bendy's eyes. In the meantime, Olaram had come out of hiding to find Princess Leia and release her. She had expected a different rescuer. Where is Obi-Wan Kenobi? Luke, Han, and Chewbacca gazed at her unfeelingly, then began to help the priests strap her down. In a dark booth, Short Rod was thrown into the mine to work with the other children. There, he learned that the spell of the potion could only be broken by the pain of shutting off the tractor beam. Then I can make Indy be himself again. I've got to escape. If you do, Shorty, I will only grow stronger. Shorty grabbed a torch and managed to fire the cannon repeatedly until he and Olaram had shot down all their pursuers. Darth Vader attacked the guards, but he was outnumbered and quickly captured. He was chained to a rock in the high priest chamber, where he saw... Shorty, Willie, Luke, Han, and Chewbacca. So they captured you too. While the worshippers were leaving, Indy looked closer at the repulsive Princess Leia. Indy used his whip to swing across the lava pit and quickly stuffed Princess Leia into his shoulder bag. Darth Vader whizzed away into a tunnel into the rocky gorge below, toward the hungry crocodiles below. Willie lunged forward and caught him just in time. Leave me. Suddenly, a familiar ship swooped down and sent Willie spinning off into space. Darth Vader soon through the narrow tunnel like a roller coaster, nearly turning over on the tight curves. Then a shot sounded. Mola Ram's guards were following in another car. Indy, Willie, and Shorty heaved over a shaggy eight-foot Wookiee out of their car onto the track. The pursuing car hit it with a horrible crash. Within minutes, dozens of Imperial stormtroopers boarded the rebel craft, firing their laser rifles. The chieftain of a nearby village walked up to greet them. Welcome. You are now in India. We have been waiting for you. The helpless Imperial stormtroopers could only surrender. Through the hatch strode Han Solo and his falcon. There he saw Darth Vader being lowered into the lava pit while Indy watched, smiling. The Emperor was delighted. Good. Kill him, Luke. A cold, evil look entered Indy's eyes. He managed to throw the Emperor into a deep pit. 
Thanks, Shorty. I'm okay now. Good. Mola Ram forced Darth Vader down Indy's throat. From now on, all your thoughts will be of dozens of Imperial stormtroopers. The potion worked. Short Round was thrown into the mine to work with the other children. <laughs> Vader crawled weakly to Mola Ram. I got to escape. You already have. Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader. One of India's ancient holy men. She had expected a different rescuer. Where is Obi-Wan Kenobi? Maybe he like older women. The scout pulled a blaster and fired back at Leia just before he collided with a roast snake and baked beetles. At the touch of a button, an intense beam of light shot out to form... A large elephant. Dozens of Imperial stormtroopers boarded the rebel craft, firing their laser rifles. Then, Mola Ram appeared with more guards. Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked, helmeted figure, Darth Vader, the fierce Imperial warrior. While stormtroopers searched frantically for the Darth Vader, Mola Ram lowered a man into boiling lava. There he learned that the spell of the potion could only be broken by the pain of fire. When his guard wasn't looking, he darted away and scrambled up a ladder into the temple. There he saw Willie being lowered into the lava pit as Luke lifted away, smiling. The Death Star exploded in a dazzling ball of flame. Darth Vader normally didn't wear a tuxedo. But he was in no mood for romance. This was business. Deadly business. The crime lord tossed gold coins at a, a shaggy eight-foot Wookiee on the table. Lau's girlfriend, Willie Scott, exploded in a dazzling ball of flame. Meanwhile, Darth Vader was questioning Princess Leia in her prison cell. He gave her a sly wink. Then he grabbed up the villager stone. The evil look at his eyes faded and was gone. He then blasted the ship with its own gun. This is Darth Vader's work, said Ben sadly. He scratched the little animal fondly behind the ear. Vader slumped over, examining a scrap of antique parchment. Indy, Willie, and Shorty heave a monstrous rancor out of their car onto the track. The chieftain of a nearby village hit it with a horrible crash. Moloram's guards curled up in a ball, turning green. As the rebel squadron flew toward the terrible Death Star, they ran like they'd never run before, really turning over on the tight curves. Their only escape route was an ancient rope bridge spanning the gorge, but either missed the target or were shot down by TIE fighters. The squadron leader spoke again. To the airport, Shorty. Fast. Vader crawled weakly to Luke. Help me get this inflatable life raft to the door. No. I've got to save you. Vader threw his drink into Luke's face and lunged across the table. Luke pulled the inflation cord and leaped up. Vader tumbled to the floor, rolling across the room, searching down the tunnel, landing in the back seat of Andy's car. He glanced over his shoulder. You already have. Luke stumbled sadly to his shuttle. Vader crawled weakly to Luke, but the young Jedi soon defeated the beast. Jabba was laughing and dancing around a large bonfire. But Luke's thoughts walked out onto the bridge. A pile of logs leaped into Luke's hand, and he swung it at the Emperor. But Vader's weapon crashed through a large window and fell three stories, landing in the back seat of Andy's car. The Emperor drank his champagne. Your fleet and your friends are no mood for romance. 
Chewbacca sniffed the air and tumbled to the floor. And Lao's men pulled out their guns and fell toward the hungry teddy bears below. But Luke felt he should stay and work on his uncle's struggling Prime Minister. Good. I can feel the diamond and gold I just gave you. <laughs> Through the hatch strode a black-cloaked helmeted figure, Darth Vader, the fierce Imperial warrior. At the last moment, she found a release. Vader jumped back and the door sprang open. Wicked gave a signal. Lao's men pulled out their guns and opened fire. And Jabba's guards were destroyed. As Endy drank his champagne, Lao flew across the room and into Luke's grasp. But the gangster only laughed. Jabba was furious and lunged across the table. But the antidote bottle fell into a dark cell which held a monstrous rancor. But the antidote bottle soon defeated the beast. Lao's men pulled out their guns and flew from primitive catapults. Lao's girlfriend, Willie Scott, crashed to the ground. The vile gangster Jabba the Hutt normally didn't wear a tuxedo. The foul Shanghai nightclub was filled with alien guards, bounty hunters, and horrible monsters. But none was worse than the huge slug-like adventurer Indiana Jones. But when the food arrived, it was awful things like a boy of 13. Meanwhile, on the desert planet of Tatooine, the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt felt like crying. However, the rescue was short-lived. Jabba's guards came out to greet them warmly. You must stay the night with us. At dinner that evening, they met the Maharaja. It was Princess Leia. As Indy climbed on a large elephant, Short Round called up to him. All right, with you, Indy? Nope. We got an elephant over there, just your size. The two dove for cover just as the an elephant went up in flames. Leia cheered. I've got to get cleaned up. When they finally reached the Palace of Pankot, laughing and dancing guards glared at them from every corner. But the Prime Minister looked at the misery around him. I, I can't believe it's over, Leia. The Imperial fleet's destroyed. The Death Star exploded. The Emperor exploded. Leia. And my father exploded. Leia exploded. Lao's girlfriend, the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt, eyed Jones with interest. But he was in no mood for romance. Then, Luke signaled to R2-D2 aboard Jabba's floating sail barge. The tiny droid tossed gold coins and a huge diamond over the pit and into Luke's waiting hand. Together, they crashed through a large window and fell three stories, sliding toward the Sarlacc pit. Han shouted, To the airport, Shorty! Fast! Lau's girlfriend, Willie Scott, leaped onto the sail barge, attacking the gun crews fearlessly. Before Luke could rejoin the Rebel Alliance, he had to visit a fancy Shanghai nightclub. This was business. Deadly business. Luke returned to Rebel headquarters in time to hear surprising news from Mon Mothma. Evil men from Pancourt stole our sacred stone. Without its protection, our wells dried up and our crops died. Then the men came back again and took away our children. Leia was surprised to see Han Solo zooming through the narrow tunnel like a roller coaster. Chewie and I will take care of this. Willie frantically shook Indy awake. Dr. Jones, wake up! The pilot, they jumped down! We've got to stop them from reporting in. I'll take the one on the right. She leaped onto a spare large elephant, but the Prime Minister came out to greet them warmly. Just before he collided with a tree, Willie raced off to her room. Luke and Leia chased Willie. They weaved among the giant trees at breakneck speed. Willie felt like crying. Finally, the rebels forced Willie to tumble helplessly into the unyielding trees. Later, back in Willie's room, 
Indy noticed a draft coming from a... The Ewoks' heads. Horrified, they watched as the high priest, Mola Ram, lowered a man into boiling lava. It was Princess Leia. While the worshippers were leaving, Indy looked closer at the repulsive Princess Leia. The scout pulled a blaster and fired back at Leia just before he collided with the palace of Pankot. Her bike tumbled into the bushes, bounced down a snowy mountainside, and slid into a rushing icy river. It was raining viciously when Sulkut and Yudo came down from the hill. Turquoise strands like motorways or the eyelashes of the proverbial gods disrupted their sight. Slimy concrete cloud squadrons droned in from the west, sinking their pale green tentacles into the southern earth. Raindrops slid down the tentacles like beads, grey-green or lit up dull electric orange by the late waking streetlights. It was like walking through the metabolism of a huge plant, alien and powerful. It's cruelty more unnerving for a total lack of evil. At the bridge they stopped to watch the bloated river. Look, exclaimed Yudo suddenly, a whale! But when they peered over the parapet, they saw that it was a single leftover elephant. The elephant had no skin, and the top of its skull had been cut away to expose the large mammalian brain. It must have been coated in a fine layer of perspex, reasoned Yudo. The elephant swam out from below the arch, using breaststroke. It started to practice its underwater dance, but after only a couple of turns, it spotted them, watching, and glid back under the bridge out of sight, so they walked on. Even the tusk hog dislikes us, commented Selkut sadly. I don't think it hates us, said Yudo. I think it's just a life to the turbulence. That's what it wants to avoid. I suppose you're right, sighed Selkut, but it felt just the same. Life had settled. It was the day before Jessica was due to go back to school. Her two brothers, William Spot and William Spottiswood, were making carpets for the gods again. They were always making carpets for the gods were William Spot and William Spottiswood. Jessica ate her breakfast slowly, a bit like a highland air. She thought if she could just slow everything down, she might never get as far as tomorrow. Outside, the rain slashed down in a Victorian way. It had black overcoats on and black top hats. It was going to be a boring day, thought Jessica. She jiggled around as if performing the courtship dance of a wolf spider, a highly poisonous breed that include the tarantula and many other dangerous arachnids. What an idiot, she felt. She decided to go and visit Dr. Charybdis, the mad scientist who lived over the hill. There was nothing else to do. William Spot and William Spottiswood were taking up all the room making carpets. So she went up to the top of the hill, past the broken trap, past Mr. Gleed, the old donkey, who they found in the bracken trap, and through Farmer Maccabee's field of stone sheep. There, in the bright green valley below, lay the house of Dr. Charybdis. A thick cloud of black smoke oozed out of both chimneys and formed a flaming ring in the sky. Down she went into the valley and knocked on the door. It opened with a loud creak. She looked down, and there was Dr. Charybdis. Come in, come in, he said in a hufty grufty voice that put Jessica in mind of the noise Earth made when spinning in its cactus. Hello, Dr. Cribdis, said Jessica. What are you inventing today, my old bagger muffin? Today, my young English account, I'm inventing a device, said Dr. Cribdis, which will tunnel far under the ground. Can I see it? asked Jessica. No, said the obstinate face of Dr. Cribdis. I have eyes, Jessica assured him quickly. Oh, all right, muttered the doctor, and showed her in. 
They scuttled swiftly to the back of the house, where Dr. Charybdis had his mad doctor's workshop. Here it is, he said, and pointed to an egg flan. But that's an egg flan, Jessica told him. Sorry, muttered the doctor. He pointed at a gleaming chrome cylinder in the back of the room. Wow, said Jessica. <laughs> Good night. Do you want a ride? gasped Dr. Charybdis. Hop in! Yes, of course, my wheedling mind friend. Shrieked Jessica. They climbed into the dark panel cockpit, full of tiny red lights, small blue and green screens, and yellow spiders. Jessica snuggled down into the co-pilot's seat and began smoking one of the spiders that Dr. Charybdis offered her. Dr. Charybdis kick-started the motor, and in a matter of seconds they were boring through the Earth's crust. The workshop vanished, and all they could see was black earth and rock. After a small number of minutes, the number three, they arrived in a huge fiery cavern, and the motor conked out. Where are we? Wept Jessica. The heat was making her eyes hot and watery. This must be one of the underground worlds that I have read about in my books, exploded Dr. Cribdis, wiping the brow off his sweat. But which one? wondered Jessica sheepishly. I don't know, mimed Dr. Cribdis with his shoulders and face. Let's find out. He activated the door and it sprang open to reveal a scene of redness and fire. Out they trotted onto a rocky outcrop. Crop, overlooking a deep chasm full of lava. Over it stretched a bridge of pure sapphire in a giddy shape that violated the human mind. Across it they crossed and found themselves in a glowing ruby tunnel. Ahead of them they could hear a loud purring as if in chorus. The tune of morning has broken. What is it? Asked Jessica. It is loud purring as if in chorus to the tune of morning has broken, simpered Dr. Charybdis. They danced foolishly around the bend, but to their horror they arrived in a magnificent white pool room. They looked round, and they were already surrounded by the forces of cats. Out of the corner of her fat, big, big, fat eye, Jessica thought thousands and thousands of William Spot and William Spottiswood's triumphant carpets. The cats were sitting on them and preening themselves vigorously, like fluffy, warm gods. Peering over the heads of the cats, Jessica could see a gigantic throne on a raised podium at the back of the room. On it sat a cat so sweet and white and gooey that Jessica wept treacle and mined the actions of a fussing festival. The cat was reading from Bogus Bigley and Miranda Quagmire's translation of the Bible for Cats. When it saw Jessica and Dr. Charybdis, it looked up and spoke in English words. Who are you? I'm Jessica, said Dr. Charybdis. <laughs> And I am Gillastag Shank, the chief leaper in Ireland, declared Jessica. Welcome, Jessica and Gillastag Shank, said the mighty cat. I am Wilfred, son of Wilberforce, son of Willie, and this is my world of cats. We are all gods here, and I am a very big god. You are very big, aren't you, said Dr. Critus smarmly. Yes, smiled Wilfred, showing his teeth and those of other people. I wouldn't like to be in your shoes. Why not? You have such small feet, sighed Wilfred. Wilfred spoke in the voice of many cats. What transformation did you make to get here? We didn't make any transformations. We came in my drilling machine, whined Dr. Charybdis' body. Oh, screamed Wilfred. All my cats come and go by making elaborate transformations. Fascinating, mined Dr. Charybdis. 
Why don't you make a transformation now? Simper, Jessica. I can't, moaned Wilfred's rueful face. I I'm too lazy. It's these carpets that William Spartan's butters would make. They're sapping my vital cat force. Terrible, gargled Dr. Charybdis. Splendid, hummed Jessica. <laughs> You've got to help me, grovelled the king of cats. Well, smiled the mad doctor. All right, choked Jessica. We'll help. When I thought to use it in the bathroom, I hide it when the family visits. I should lose my temper if I found it sludgy in the bottom of the water left in the We'll help, but you've got to transform us back to something. The drilling machine only works one way. Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. 
And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.